0: Thank you. Six Figure Developer Podcast, the podcast where we talk about new and exciting technologies, professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I'm John Calloway.
1: I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash.
2: With us today are Mary and Tom Pappendick. Mary started her career as a process control programmer, moved on to manage the IT department of a manufacturing plant, and then ended up in product development, where she was both a product champion and department manager. Tom is an enterprise analyst and architect and an Agile Process Mentor. He focuses on identifying real business value and enabling
1: product teams to realize that value. Welcome, Mary and Tom.
3: Glad to be here. Indeed.
1: So before we uh, jump into the meat of things, would you give our listeners a little uh, deeper introduction to yourselves? You know, perhaps tell them how you got started in the industry.
3: So I'll start with, uh, I started out in the industry as my first job in 1967, which is yes, 55 years ago. And I got a job just out of college at Bell Telephone Laboratories. And when I was there, I um, spent a year doing programming for the number two ESS switching system. That's the second category of switching systems for small suburban uh, telephones that uh, was just being put into place. Before that, all telephones were switched electromechanically. And interestingly enough, electromechanical switches were highly reliable. And so our goal was a maximum downtime of two hours in 40 years. Okay, so that's like, um, that's a pretty high bar. It's like three minutes a year, Um, like way more than five nines. So the the fact is that we actually thought that we made that, except for the fact that the entire network of switching systems went down for about a half a day in 1990 because of a cascading network failure. But other than that, it was cl- about as reliable. If you If you look at the old dial telephone, which was directly wired to a mile away local substation, those were... The only things that were alive when you had disasters or floods or something like that, you lose electricity, you never lost your phone. They were considered a very highly reliable means of transportation. They only became less reliable when we started relying on computers, because one computer can take like a whole bunch of them down. We have been trying to chase that level of reliability for a very long time. And I don't think we've gotten there yet, although, I think we now begin to trust some of our cloud providers approximately as much as we used to trust the telephone companies. So that's what I did. And then I um, worked at the University of Wisconsin where Tom was getting his, his physics PhD. I worked for a physics professor and I did programming on a um, very old and um, you know one of a kind mini computers, which were just being invented and we were using it to control a f- bubble chamber film film analysis. So this computer rapidly digitized three-dimensional views of bubble chamber film and then drew a line and then sent it off to a big computer to do animation. And we controlled all of the equipment in the room to do all the scanning and all of the rapid flooding. Okay, so this is like The 60s is pretty aggressive. And then we did, um, then I got a job working at 3M for quite a few years working in designing and developing control systems for, for um, manufacturing plants. Now, 3M had been controlling manufacturing plants for a long time, but not with computers. So I went in there and did what the, you know, the guys had for years been able to senior engineers could do in wires. And I just did the same thing in computers. And I learned how to con- how to do computing pretty much in an engineering department that did process control computing in in high in, you know in explosive areas, very safety critical kind of stuff, very very conscientious of of the safety issues around it, very much responsible for the results of what we did, and that sort of thing. And Then I worked in in uh, product development in 3M, and eventually. Uh, took an early retirement leave and started writing books. So what we've
4: done since is our retirement hobby. Yeah. <laughs> I started as a high school physics teacher, got my degree at Wisconsin, um, spent eight years as a physics professor at a university, moved on to uh, working for Honeywell um, in the division that makes navigation systems for commercial airlines.
3: Um, Another safety critical part.
4: Yeah. So, again, my my experience started out um, safety critical. Um, And engineering focused. Moved on from there to several other jobs and ended up as a uh, consultant where I had the enterprise architect title. Um, Again, about 2000, the whole industry collapsed, as you might remember and decided that the best choice was to retire to our
1: current hobby.
3: So that was like 20 plus years ago.
1: Yeah. So that sort of brings us to what, what, what are you doing these days?
3: Well, what, what are we doing these days? Um, you recall, we both said we started out as engineers. We did neither of us have an engineering degree, but we both worked in engineering departments and I had, at least for me, engineer in my job title for quite a few years. And um, I observed that the history of computing has treated people who write code like technicians that do what they're told rather than engineers that so are given problems to solve. And my campaign is to change that and get software engineers to be treated like engineers you know, that are given problems to solve and responsibility for the results of those problems.
4: If you're an engineer and the bridge falls down, you are at fault. You are responsible. If you are a developer and somebody tells you to change the flight control software and two airplanes crash. It's not your fault.
1: You're not an engineer. Do you think, do you think that is, I mean, wholly to blame for the way that software engineers are treated? Or do you think that there's a software development mentality that also lacks sort of that taking that responsibility as an engineer?
3: Well, let's go back to where we started using software as a mechanism to automate business processes or to automate um, engineering processes. So those people like us that program in engineering departments were actually always treated like engineers because we were in an engineering department. But the people who were in the departments called IT or information technology or whatever other title they got um, were there to automate business processes. Automate. I mean, I can remember when I had a paper book that I brought into the bank that people wrote when I gave them a little bit of money, you know, and all that banking and all those other processes went through a whole bunch of years of being automated. And at that point in time, it is true that the customer of the IT department was the business organization. That's not true anymore. Um, And we still treat them, uh, IT people, as if the customer that they're doing stuff for Is the business group instead of the fact that there's these customers of the company whom they are colleagues with, whom they and their colleagues, sometimes called business people, um, are trying to serve? And we have very highly automated products. We have software all over the place that's strategic. And we still have this very long history of treating software folks as get a spec from the business people and do what they say. Now, you don't do that in marketing. You don't get a spectrum the business people and do what they say. You don't do that in product development. If you're developing a hardware problem, you don't get a spectrum the marketing guys and do what they say. You understand the customer and develop an appropriate product. But we don't have a history of thinking about the IT department as an equivalent department to, say, marketing or engineering or uh, customer service or something like that. They are sort of In service to somebody in the company, rather than in service to the uh, customers of the company, and that's changed for sure in the last 20 years, and probably in the decade before that, as the internet came in, and all of a sudden our programming switched to a whole different venue and a whole different focus. We still kept all the baggage of the fact that, at least in the non-engineering, the in the you know, in the information systems part of software development, our customer was remained the business and we were a cost center and our job was to keep costs down and to do what they said. And we have that legacy that we have not been able to shake in, uh, I will call them legacy industries, you know, like banking and telecom and insurance and even some medical stuff. But where we have products like a fancy medical device or a process control system, or a product that's going to be automated, or uh, you know a search thing like Google, we have not quite so much history of telling the software people that they do what somebody else says. Their history is much more figure out what customers want and deliver it. And I'm trying to bring that same mindset to all of software development, because the, the stuff that got the IT people got stuck with is like, you know, it's kind of out-of-date thinking. And it's time for us to think about what we do with technology and our company is strategic. And we have smart people and we have to let them be smart. We have to let them be engineers. In fact, you know, in very many parts of the country, you can't advertise for software developers anymore. If you don't say it's a software engineering job, you can't get anybody to apply. So you pretend it's software engineering, but do you treat it like software engineering? That's my big thing today.
0: Tom, it's interesting that you mentioned the two thousands because I started my career in December of ninety nine and and I was thankful to have started at that time because at least I was at least I was young enough and and, and uh not commanding a large salary so that I could come in after they've already laid off all the the high-dollar knowledge workers. (laughs) Um, But I I remember in the early 2000s when companies would bring in consulting agencies that would put together their software development lifecycle process, and they spent two months in a room with all the business folks and came out with a a document that said, now your SDLC is 12 weeks. There's going to be all this big upfront design, the development starts on week eight and concludes at the start of week 10, and then testing begins, and then you start the process all over after you deliver.
3: Or after you find all the faults with the testing.
0: Well, yeah, because you're going to have to start over with the, the spec review process and the, the big upfront design. So what have we learned? It's It feels like there's been a lot of momentum over the last 10, 20 years on Better processes and, and better understanding that it is a knowledge worker position. It is uh, something that we are gathering requirements from those that have a need. We are fulfilling a need. Are, are we headed in the right direction? Or what do, you, what do you see the trends have been?
4: I heard something two days ago, which I think is profoundly important. Companies no longer hire consultants or coaches as external people to come in and help them achieve something. They are figuring out finally that those roles are core to their enterprise goals. They cannot outsource core functionality. They are making sure that those critical roles are internal, that they have the expertise themselves rather than hiring external consultants. That's important. That's what we've been trying to get at for 20 years.
3: So if we go back 20 years ago, I'm going to take issue with one of the words you used because you said, are we still gathering requirements? Well, I don't believe the concept of gathering requirements is the proper concept to think of. Okay, so 20 years ago, that's what we did. And in fact, 20 years ago, all of the stuff we did was in service to somebody else. We had no automated processes. We did not have automated testing. We did not have automated either unit testing or acceptance testing. We did not have automated deployment. A build took two days because we couldn't push a button and make something happen. Um, We just had an incredible amount of really slow stuff And um, hardware provisioning, uh, even monitoring and production, I can remember I was working with a a group of people and they um, what they did was they uh, the the ops people put big chalk on the wall and the process they had to go through every, you know, every hour, check this. And before you do this, you look at the chalkboard and see what you're supposed to do next. None of that stuff was automated. And if something went wrong, you didn't have any way to look at where, where it failed and you didn't have monitoring software running. So there was very little automation. And I think the big thing that happened between 2000 and 2020 is that we have figured out how to automate great tons of what it is that we do. So we started, if you think about the shoemakers, children that didn't have any shoes, like that was us. Uh, we had no automation at all. And we started out learning that we should do automation. And I think the very first thing that we did was open source stuff. Because the fact is that open source, yeah, it started in the mid-80s technically and got going pretty well in the 90s is when it started gaining uh, credibility. Early 90s, just some of the really early uh, stuff happened with with uh, um, when Trove's when we had Linux get started and when the uh, Apache Foundation was founded and and we started putting servers in open source. But um, today, open source is, of course, you know, one of the foundations of what we do for servers and for a whole lot of our operating systems. And what we were doing was we were solving our own problems. We were not doing what somebody told us to do. We were taking the code and allowing ourselves to to create email accounts so that we could email each other about problems. We were solving our own problems with software. And then we began to figure out about test-driven development. When Kent Breck first wrote about his first test-driven thing was in Smalltalk in like 98-ish timeframe. And Smalltalk was that kind of language where all of the early people in Agile actually came from the Smalltalk community, it seems to me, because that was the kind of language where you actually – did a lot of the stuff that Agile wanted. It was kind of built into the language. So he created a test driven small talk routine. And then eventually by 99 converted it over to um, J unit. And then we started having, you know, all sorts of other units N unit and unit in this unit, and that unit, and all of a sudden unit testing became something all of those being open source, right. And Um, Now we could do unit testing as much as we wanted. And if we could convince ourselves and and the people that were leading our teams, uh, hopefully a technically savvy person who thought this was a good idea, we could create a test framework, just like hardware people create a test bed for whenever they make something in hardware. We could plug our software into the test bed uh, anytime we made a change, anytime we added something new, and we could know that what we just did was good. And boy, did that feel good since it used to be that you had to wait for like two months, six months, sometimes a year to find out if what you just did actually was right. And so we we started doing test-driven development in unit tests, but we took a very long time to figure out how to do test-driven development for acceptance tests. It was, a, it was and remains a much bigger problem because... Um, Unit tests are for a piece, but acceptance tests are, does the whole system do what you want it to do? And because we had developed software, which was a big ball of mud, everything interlocked, huge amounts of dependencies, it became impossible to write code that could adequately test it that wasn't just explosively complex, which isn't very, very good way to test things. It took us until I'd say 2010, to really have our handle on how do we do automated acceptance testing. Probably, uh, Jeff Jez Humble and Dave Farley's book, uh, Continuous Delivery, was the first time that there somebody really laid out the details of how can you actually do automated delivery with automated tests and then just pop it right into production. And um, that was actually written for enterprises. It was radical. Um, Some people actually tried it and generally got it to work, but they did have to change their mindset in order to make it happen. Um, But that took, you know, almost a decade to figure out how to do automated acceptance testing. But today you can do it as long as your architecture allows you to. And the the, the trick was to getting an architecture where you could do piecemeal um, testing and then have hardened connections on either end without any sort of back paths into the the code. Basically having really well-factored code allowed you to have well-factored tests and then you could actually test from an acceptance point of view. Um, Getting that architecture together um, took even longer. The, the, The classic microservices architecture was pioneered by Amazon in the early 2000s, but everybody thought they were crazy. And it took a decade for people to recognize that they were actually onto something. And uh, really, because, well, yeah, they're Amazon, they could do anything, but we can't do that, right? Uh, and it wasn't until the, you know, 2013-14 that we started hearing about, you know what? Microservices are actually something that real real companies can do, not just Amazon. And um, you know those great big databases that we used to have? Guess what they do? They're massive code couplers. They create the big ball of mud because everything that goes through the database, you have to test everything else that goes through the database, And that's why we have these great big builds and these months and months and months long development processes and these tests that take forever instead of having well-factored decoupled code. And I can remember in the early 2000s, people would forever say, yeah, but how do I deal with dependencies? I mean, I've got so many of them. How can this agile stuff ever work with dependencies? And it took me a very long time to have the guts to say it doesn't. You got to get rid of the dependencies. You got to quit thinking they're good. But when I first heard that Amazon had these separate little services that had their own data and no central database, I I quite frankly I thought they were crazy. I didn't everybody knew that if you didn't have a central database handling transactions, your transactions were really at risk. And so all the major purpose of having a database was to make sure your transactions were properly handled. And what did Amazon do? It took in, it says, you know what? They're in a computer big enough in the world to handle transactions in a single database. And if you think you're gonna have a single database that handles that's, that's your you know your corporate truth teller, it's not gonna be possible and be as big as we wanna be. So they broke those those transactions up into little pieces of services spread the data out all over the place, that was so counterintuitive. It just took a very long time for people to realize that spreading stuff out like that, instead of having great big stuff in a package, was really a better way to go. Um, And finally, people kind of caught on to that, and it was maybe 2013, 14, 15, when people started saying, ah, there's something to be said here. At the same time, the cloud wants small pieces. The cloud came in the very first hint of it, 2007, didn't actually start getting anywhere until say 2010, 11, 12, even then real companies would never consider cloud. It was too dangerous or all that sort of stuff. And and so the cloud came along and it was built on lots of very cheap, very fragile pieces. Anything we put on the internet is built on cheap, fragile pieces, right? And um, so we had to convince the world, ourselves technically, that if you have cheap, fragile stuff, what you need to do is use software to replicate it, to detect errors, to kick out the error thing, take the replications, re-replicate it, and you actually can have something that's far more reliable than if you had one great big hunking thing that almost never fails. Because almost never fails isn't good enough. Anything that can go wrong is going to go wrong. So you'll have to handle failure, not try to prevent it. This concept of handling failure, uh, and it allowed us to spread these things out horizontally rather than vertically. So instead of a great big hunking computer, we had lots of little ones. Instead of a great big database, we had lots of little file pieces. Actually Google was the first company that, did their file system where they spread out little bits of the file all over the place, triplicate. You know, they had a f- manager of all of these pieces. And when the hardware with, with some of the pieces went down, which it always did because they were so big, um, man, no problem. They had plenty of software to come in, take the other two, decide which one was wrong, put the right ones here, add another third one from here, throw out the bad hardware. They look at their data centers and they routinely are throwing away hardware that failed. It's it's not uncommon all the time, but the failure doesn't keep the software from being accurate. So what we learned in the those decades was how to use software to build in reliability that can never be there in hardware. And um, that doesn't mean that software doesn't ever fail, but um, it means that you have, I mean, with hardware you have a mean time between failure that you actually can't get around. And at Bell Labs, the reason why we could determine how, we, how much we needed in replication and how fast we had to repair stuff was because the mean time between failure was known for every single component. And we could calculate the mean time between failure for any single office. And we could put in the systems to make sure that that mean time between failure was always uh, way longer than any kind of time when any replicated equipment would be done. And that's what gave us reliability. And that's the same thing we're doing in software. We are saying, okay, we know the hardware is bad. So we are going to take our software and we are going to assume that things will fail. And we're going to figure out how to deal with that. And when we learn how to do that, then we learned a different way of thinking about how you build software. It's not great big central things. It's certainly not dependencies. It's um, having things that relatively disjoint human teams can deal with and think about and get their heads around. So we talk about scaling, but really scaling is managing to figure out how to decouple pieces so they're not coupled together and have pieces sensibly orchestrated so that real, you know, real regular sized teams or team of teams can deal with the system or the part of the system that they're supposed to. And to me, that's what scaling is all about. You know, the companies that talk about scaling are not the great, big, massive internet companies that have already figured out how to scale. They're the ones that have a single data center and want to figure out how to make that data center bigger. That no, doesn't work. That's not the way you scale. You can take a look at the massively big cloud companies and find out that they don't worry a bit about scaling. That's not their game. They've already scaled and they understand that scaling takes a lot of little tiny pieces and manages the reliability in software. Make sure that when stuff fails, you can recover uh, and it's completely not not seen by the person on the telephone or the person that's on the computer or something like that. So we learned how to do all of that stuff in the last 20 years. Let me see what else I got here that we learned how to do. The, um, the big thing that I also have is this whole concept of infrastructure as code. Um, it's, it's impossible to, to say how important it was for us to quit thinking about hardware and start thinking about infrastructure being code, not hardware. Not four, three, four years ago, I was at a great big bank, and we were talking about their biggest bottleneck, and their biggest bottleneck was the fact that when the team got to doing something, they always had to wait to get hardware provisioned. Okay, so this is like, you know, 2018 or something. Like that. I looked at them like in total disbelief. You still provision hardware? You're like, you're kidding me. Like, okay, like in 2012, that might have been a bottleneck. But if you guys haven't figured out how to move out of the hardware provisioned, Provisioning world and into the infrastructure's code world, then quit talking about why you're slow. None of this, none of the rest of it, you can do all the agile you want, you can do all the everything else you want, but if you can't provision in a cloud based manner, like, yes, you're going to be slow. And there ain't nothing that's going to make you faster until you figure out that we don't provision hardware as hardware anymore. That's not what we do. That's like so last decade. So, um, so it's interesting that the concept that we don't deal with hardware, we, we have a layer in between where software is managing it. That's the kind of tools that, it took, that we built over the past 20 years. So it, it isolates us from the problems that the hardware brings to us, and it helps us to manage them. And we've spent a lot of time managing the stuff that we used to do manually in an automated way, and that's what's made us way more reliable. We've put it in code and, you know, code is different than hardware. It has its own methods of failures and we all know that, but it's different. (laughs) And so we can deal with the hardware failures and we can figure out how to do stuff like replication and we can get back towards that reliability that our telephone systems used to have like 30 years ago.
4: Actually, this is not very new. Back when we started programming in the 60s and 70s, an awful lot of software was event driven, you had to process interrupts and make sure that you handled them in a way and you had to be well aware that um, things were not reliable, you had to have things work anyway. And we're kind of getting back to the same general concept that uh, the whole uh, Lambda uh, serverless type computing is really just a updated version of what we were doing in the 70s.
3: Especially if we were in engineering programming. Yeah. I mean, when I was automating a, a big explosion roll goods process, the first thing that every single engineer knew was that everything was going to fail at some point. And if you didn't have everything fail, fail safe, you know, you just didn't deserve your job because fail safe failure in a in a in an environment like that is the most fundamental concept. So, you made sure that every piece of, so if you put in a computer, it was just a small control loop. Um, I was reading about how SpaceX uh, software team was thinking about their code and they said, actually, it's just a whole bunch of, of small control loops controlling one thing and a message bus telling it what the set point is. And I'm thinking, yeah, I get that architecture. I used to work with that. That makes a lot of sense because nothing is dependent upon anything else, because every single thing that could go wrong, the message bus will go wrong. The the loop will go wrong. the, The sensor will die. Everything will happen. And if you haven't designed yourself to feel safe when everything, when any of those things happen, then you don't understand what your job is. And that was beaten into our heads as engineers like long time ago. So we understood that these very small, low dependency, independent things were the way that you had to program. When I wanted to make a change in a process control system, I went into the plant and I changed that piece of code because it had to be designed so that that piece of code didn't have to be there. Because there, is, there was no way you could design dependencies that if this thing went down, then those five things went down, not in a manufacturing plant that's a where you're trying to control great big dangerous equipment You can't do that, and so, when you think about that we we could do more of that
0: yeah, and, and we've talked about that uh, quite a bit on the show as well about how we're rediscovering things that that were <laughs> invented fifty and sixty years ago that turned out that they were really good ideas uh ash has a, a history a background in in engineering and i I wonder you 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 had mentioned. How back then, or at least if you were a software engineer in an engineering practice, that you had all of these disciplines, you had all of these expectations. So how do we get to become software engineers? Or how do we get to have others see us as engineers?
3: Oh, we have to, we have to change the way software engineers are, ex- are given work. So if you look at any team, Okay. The question is, how does that team know what to do? Now, let's take an engineering team. Let's pretend they're structural engineers. And I always like to put my structural engineers in Santiago and there's an earthquake. And they belong to a structural engineering company. And their company is called in to evaluate, you know, 15 buildings, find out whether or not they're safe and come up with remediation things to make them safe. That's what the structural engineering firm is supposed to do. They have senior engineers. They have junior engineers. They put teams together that are a collection of both. They send, say, five people with, you know, a lead engineer and and various other folks to this building. Nobody tells them how long it's going to take, how much it's going to cost, because that's not the game. It's is it safe and what do we have to do to make it safe? And Nobody's going to tell those engineers here are your cost and schedule parameters. Because they're the ones that know how much time they need to take to determine properly whether or not the building is safe and to come up with a remediation plan. And that all you tell them is, let me know if it's safe and where it's safe and what I need to do to make it safe. That's the only instructions you give them because the rest is their job. And when we got put a process control system on a process, Nobody told us how to do it or what the priorities were or anything like that because that was our job. Nobody was going to tell us how to put a process control system on a computer because we were the ones who knew how to put a process. And we knew what made it work and what didn't make it work and how to make it so it would start up right. So we need to start creating an environment where teams are given that kind of challenge. Okay. Here is a problem. And here is what we need to have it solved. And here's how we're going to know that it's solved. And you guys uh, have the, the, the wherewithal and the structure and the leadership in your team to figure it out. And uh, that's the job. And if you start treating software engineers like that, you're giving them the problem and the thing that needs to be solved, and you're expecting them to figure out how to do it.
1: I, I also think that you also have to be giving them the ownership of the failure as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Because well, you you talked about the the professional engineers, the structural engineers. There's also a PE that's signing off on all of those things. There's is there, who's a professionally licensed engineer who Correct. takes that responsibility and when those the that building falls down or whatever it's going to come back to them that's right um, and so that, that's one thing i think that has been severely lacking from software development teams is that they get to throw that over the wall and then never see the rep- repercussions of their of their disaster
3: so that was not true of course in my engineering department um and uh, i have a son who's a environmental engineer, which is a civil engineer, and he's a professional engineer. And um, he gets that. He taught engineering. And he said the very first year they had an ethics course, every engineer. And they learned that they were responsible for the safety of what they were designing. And they were responsible to understand it enough to assure that nothing they did would impair the safety of the thing that they were designing. And we need to be able to do that.
1: I think also. So I, I was a, a, a aeronautics engineer, um, aerospace, and um, that that's where the vast majority of my schooling came there. And then I switched later to become a, a software. It was it was just sort of uh, I really enjoyed it, and you know, found that th- I didn't have to like move. Uh, so so like that was pretty awesome. So one of the major differences, even in education, like even in colleges, college classes and whatnot, was the, the mentality difference between that. We, we certainly had an ethics course, uh, you know, that I took when I was, you know, going through, uh, the software, the software side, but there was a lot more, um, it was a lot more real. And in all of the courses that I took that the, the danger and the implications of making a mistake were, were far more real to, to any, of the like aeronautical engineering this is i mean you make a mistake there people die airplanes fall out of the sky right right. and so like that was like in every single class yep like we were we were you know taught to like sort of be so so efficient so when i saw you know test driven development i was like this is fantastic right because it made sense to that mindset of like i want to double check my work here to make sure that but i just uh, don't see it I didn't see it in the in my colleagues, and I don't. Right. I don't always see it in in the other software engineers that are that I that I run into.
3: Right, and 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 since I came from the engineering side too, I find that really painful. Um, the 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 fact that people do not take responsibility for results also means they don't get they don't get credit for results. So you know you can say that if if the software engineers might should have been held responsible for the software in the Boeing plane. But you also take a look at the software engineers, the, the aerospace engineers that are that program Crew Dragon that went up in the sky. There's a Reddit um, th- thread where they came on five of them and said, Ask us anything. And is really cool because in the Ask Us Anything, Uh, One person said, do you feel responsible for the safety of the crew? And they said, absolutely, we feel responsible for the safety of the crew because everything that happens is controlled by software. And all we have to do is get one thing wrong and, uh, you know, and people die. And, however, I don't feel anxious about it because we have a structure whereby uh, we're constantly challenging the work that we do and other people in the team are challenging the safety of anything that happens. And it's not just me that's making these decisions. It's everybody constantly challenging whether or not this is a safe thing to do. And so I feel like I've got a lot of backup and support on the kinds of decisions that I make. And the absolutely I am responsible is is OK, as long as you also have that whole process in place to make sure that the safety concept is there. I remember as a junior engineer doing software and a process control system, the senior engineers would say to me, yeah, Mary, you can program anything you want with the computers, but we're doing the safety systems and wires. (laughs) You don't get to touch the safety systems. So all of the emergency stop stuff was just basically hardwired to the the fire extinguishers or whatever, because there was no way they were going to let that go through code. And and I felt good about that because, you know, if I made a mistake, then uh, I wasn't going to kill someone.
4: There's a profound contrast between that story and what people encounter in corporate IT environments. The driving factor too often in corporate IT environments is a pursuit of some pernicious thing called productivity and efficiency. Now, what does that mean? That means that you focus on cost per output. People are finally starting to realize that it's not outputs that matter. More output is often worse than less output
3: if it's the wrong
4: output. Getting the right output is what matters.
3: Yeah, what's better, a big code base or a little code base?
4: (laughs) The The thing to focus on instead is outcome, a safe ride to space, an effective customer experience that makes them want to uh, be a customer of your organization or that will help them manage their health in a better way. Um, It's the outcome that matters, the impact that you have from the work that you do. And that is the migration That all the things Mary's talked about enables. Now, unfortunately, or fortunately perhaps, software people can't do that by themselves. You need a village to raise a child, you need a team of people, some who have daily interactions with customers, like customer support or sales marketing people. You need to have people that can assess the viability of the solutions that you are evolving, like finance people who can do a p and that will show, is what you're going to work be financially viable? If it's not, it's not an outcome that is going to be effective. You need people um, from manufacturing because if what you're engineering is not going to be buildable, if it's going to um, not work well in the actual delivery of the stuff, Um, You need a whole bunch of different perspectives depending on the product area you're in. And all of those people have to be members of the team, all jointly responsible for the outcome. Separating any one of those areas from responsibility is a recipe for two decades of disaster.
3: Well, we have historically treated IT as a cost center and a cost center has no responsibility for business results, has responsibility only for reducing costs and doing stuff more efficiently. We just have got to get over that. Okay. That does no longer make any kind of sense, but that is really our history of thinking of IT as a cost center is really, I think, the the history that has given us like huge amounts of problem in this industry. If you take a look at people writing software, I'm gonna guess, and I've seen other guesses like this, that half of the people are writing embedded software, firmware, coded engineering departments, that sort of thing. And you know what? You don't ever see those folks talking about agile or transformation or anything like that because that's not relevant to the way they think about their jobs. So the stuff that's not um, IT software doesn't tend to fall into the the game of people worrying about uh, transformation, people worrying about being agile. It tends to be the stuff that has a legacy of very large uh, cost center type thinking. And some companies have an extraordinarily difficult time getting past that. And some companies were born past that. I mean, companies that were born starting in the late 1990s were born with CEOs who probably used computers when they were kids. That if you go back like 20 years before is when you started having 12 year olds using computers and those kinds of folks never felt it necessary to take this technology that they didn't understand and put it off in an island somewhere, so they didn't have to deal with it.
4: But they could manage by the numbers.
3: Right. And and so that's the history that we have in, in the IT area of software. That's why I like to think about product development. And I've actually read recently that CIOs are even being encouraged to think about product development, not projects. So think about the fact that most companies' products have software component, large strategic software component. And if – it were any other thing than software. There's no way that that would be, you know, farmed off into a cost center. Just no way. We have to start thinking about, you know, strategic portions of our product having strategic kinds of thinking behind the way that it's built. Yeah,
0: and I think in the last few years, I've noticed a lot of the conversations are moving away from talking about delivering of points and more focusing on delivering of value or, or delivering yeah. outcomes or delivering products and, and really centering around that language so that we're, we're more talking about what are the actual things of value we're delivering.
3: We've, we've had people called business analysts. We've had people called product owners. We've had folks like that whose job it is to figure out what the team ought to do. I think that's wrong. You look at any other engineering discipline and that intermediary does not exist. We have put intermediaries between a good technical engineering team and the thing that they ought to be, the problem that they ought to be solving, acting as a translator. And that's one last step that I want to interject here. That's just basically not an engineering approach. Engineers do not want somebody that's setting their priorities or telling them what to do or checking out whether or not they've done the right thing or anything like that. They need to be given high-level goals. They need to have good – don't. it's not like you just have a team where everybody's the same. You probably have some senior people and some junior people. You could have a chief engineer or a lead engineer or something like that. There's nothing wrong with that. Okay, Uh, it's very common in almost every engineering discipline, that junior people learn from the senior people. And we haven't set software up even now, even when we talk about agile, we haven't set it up to think really hard about how the team knows what to do. Instead, we have, we have done this cop out and sold that off to somebody else that we don't consider part of the technical team. And that's wrong. That is just plain, we're, we're not going to get there until we stop doing that. You need a team that includes business people. Yes, that includes product people. Yes, that includes customer service. You need a complete team focusing on solving a problem. Think about it like a little startup business. In the a startup business, you have all of those pieces and you have an entrepreneur who's the leader. And, uh, and as a group, they figure out how to you know, solve that problem. And if you thought about developing products as small startup businesses rather than a technology silo and a product silo and a manufacturing silo. If you thought about it as a complete team starting up a business, then you would have a much better logical structure to think about how the team would know what to do. Because how does a startup group know what to do? How does a startup company figure it out? They have somebody with a vision that founded them who hired people that thought these are the folks that can help me figure this out, who's got the right kind of mix if they're good. And as a group, they learn about the customer, they learn about the problem, they check financial viability, they get support. And if you think about that whole process, the entrepreneurial startup process, and think about product development like that, then you have a model for how we might think about um, putting software engineers back into the engineering realm.
4: And the key is think our business, not the
3: business. Yeah, there's no such When I hear no the such business, thing as the business. <laughs> there's no the business. It's our business.
1: <laughs> yeah, in a startup, even even you have the person who has the vision, right? But really, all of the people that are coming along to that startup, they've all bought into that vision too and sort of own it to some degree themselves and are contributing back to it and, and whatnot. So.
3: And then actually, it's the job of the guy with the vision to sell that vision.
1: To sell that vision to them so that they can be owners of that vision.
3: And yeah, they can figure out how to solve it because it's that very common that a startup entrepreneur is the one that knows all the answers of how to do stuff. That's why they hire all these specialty teams.
1: <laughs> so folks uh, who might be looking to really, you know, sort of change their mindset um, and uh, you know grow in... Uh, be, becoming more of that, getting that, more, that engineering mindset, uh, you know, understand what are some of the different ways that we can um, sort of become more agile, become more lean. W- what are some of the resources you can point people to, to, um, to sort of foster that inside of them?
3: That's hard. Um, what I'm going to suggest is that when they're looking for jobs, they look for companies that have, that are in a tough competitive world, okay? Because I'm finding that um, industries that have a lot of competition or that have a lot of disruption and companies that are in those industries have the most forward-looking senior managers that are willing to try new things. If they go into any environment in which everybody's comfortable with the old way because there's not much reason to change they are maybe want to think about how do i i probably can't change this company how do i find a company that needs to think differently um as far as resources um how about you 10
4: years ago there were a lot of good books they're still good books but now they are table stakes yeah agile lean has become table stakes. There's no great diversity. The advances in the last decade or so have been largely in matters of architecture. And the architecture comes in many flavors. There's the technical architecture we spoke of earlier, the evolution to the clouds and software as everything. Um, There's also team, architecture, organizational architecture. And to my mind, the frontier today is not the increasingly complex technical architecture and reliability architecture and all of that, but is the organizational architecture, how you organize teams, how you organize thinking around products, what it means to be successful Um, I think that is the area that the greatest opportunity these days exists in. So you want to find a company, as Mary said, that's in a highly competitive place where decisions are not going to be driven by um, attempting to implement a scaled agile framework of any sort, where decisions are not going to be driven by um, metrics like productivity. where the um, outcomes that the people have come together to achieve are what matters.
3: So looking at, here's one resource I would definitely recommend, actually, now that I think about it. Um, there's a book called Working Backwards, Insight Stories and Secrets from Inside Amazon by Colin uh, Beyer and Bill Carr, those are executives High-level executives at Amazon in the 2000-2010 timeframe, and they write about how the organization learned to do the uh, the the architecture that they do. And the reason why I think it's interesting is um, this company is the company that is behind AWS. And I don't want to think about Amazon as somebody that ships you all the you know the books and stuff like that, but think about AWS. Think about this organization that has pretty much uh, put enterprise level software services on the market, 10, 20 of them a year since about 2012 and who's um, pretty much wiping out they had about a 45 or 50 billion dollar a year business the last time I looked. and um, they don't they announce when they're going to do something, they do something. At an enterprise level, people trust what they do. You just don't see the kinds of uh, questions about them. They're very innovative, um, and they have pretty much dominated the enterprise level cloud services, which is not to say that Microsoft isn't there and that Google isn't there. But I think if you read this book, there's a chapter in there about um, the organizational structure that they put in place to make All of this happened because they have a huge AWS. It's massive. And yet, and they have like 50, I don't know. I don't know if all 40 or 50,000 of those developers are working on that, but there's an awful lot of people working on that software. How do they organize those teams so that they know what to do and so that they can make sure that what they do is right? So if you take a look at the book, it talks about the organizational structure And they basically have a concept, it's it's way beyond two pizza teams. Okay, yes, there are two pizza teams, but they discovered, and this is what they still lean on, is that the concept of a single threaded leader was the thing that turned out to give them the most, the best predictor of a team success. So they said the best predictor of a team success is a leader with the appropriate skills, authority, and experience to staff and manage a team whose sole focus is to get the job done. And that's why single-threaded leader. The team and the leader do one and only one thing, that is they have an assignment and they have nothing else to do but to get that done. And they have a leader with the skill to hire the appropriate people and the experience to staff the team so that it can get the job done. So um, when you think about uh, how do you organize an organization, that can come up with massively successful software year in and year out for a whole lot of years, that would be one company to look at. And um, that book is a really pretty interesting one. There's another book, Think Like Amazon, by another one of their executives that talks about how, and it's an older book, it talks about how all of their um, teams are given customer-focused outcomes that are measurable, that they're expected to deliver. And that's all they get. And a leader who's chartered to deliver on those outcomes, and then they get to figure out the rest, which is not to say that everything they do is great, but um, you wouldn't want to be competing with them, I would imagine. So that's those those two books, Think Like Amazon is an older one and then Working Backwards, are some that I think are interesting because they they have a completely different take than what we've been talking about on how people can do this, uh, how you can think about this. Any other ideas, Tom, for resources? The other resource I like a lot, but I haven't seen a lot written about it, is I like to look at SpaceX as a model, because SpaceX has taken the cost to develop a, a space rocket, a booster down by a factor of 10. They've taken the cost to fly. A kilo of, of weight into space down by a factor of, I don't know, 15 to 20. They've done it in about 10 years by a completely different approach than we tend to be talking about when we're talking about software development. And yet that space, that space structure is highly automated. It's like, oh, software going up in the air. It's all about software and anything that you can find out about how they think about Um, how they organize and structure things is pretty interesting. And um, there's a few presentations and and written stuff, not a whole lot, but um, they operate on the principle of responsibility. If you are ever listening to a blast off, you hear each responsible engineer say that their area is right. They organize on the principle that a space capsule has, 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 has uh, pieces. It has, There's a whole thing. It has a fuselage. It has rockets. It has stage one, stage two. And then there's somebody in charge of the whole thing. There's a launch director, John Miratori, I think it is. And then each area has its chief engineer and they work with the other associated ones. And um, they have teams that are expected and each team is expected to do the best job they can on an engine, you know, or a space capsule and to know their job in the whole scheme of things. And there's a massive amount of automation so that when it explodes, they can tell within 10 minutes what exactly went wrong. And nobody told them they had to do that. They just know that if something goes wrong, they've got, you know, 24 hours to tell, uh, to, to, to tell Musk. Musk when he calls exactly what happened and how it's never going to happen again. So, yep, it's all uh, instrumented. So um, the, the way that they have done that is a whole different concept than the way that we think about software. They've done it through every single three months, we will have a deadline and we're gonna shoot up a booster. And you know what, the date isn't gonna change and every team brings their best shot. And it doesn't have to be perfect, but you have to be there cause it's going in the air. And so we have these absolute deadlines with every team doing their best shot towards it. And that concept of having absolute deadlines in which everything is put together and tested every three months, is a really classic hardware engineering approach.
4: Now, if your project is bigger than Amazon or bigger than a rocket to the moon, then that might not apply.
2: Is there there anything, uh, let's say, outside of having an engineering mindset Uh, that you might share with uh, those maybe just getting started in their career or those looking to uh, perhaps accelerate their career uh, that's been helpful to you?
4: I don't think there's any um, alternative to having people part of your team, perhaps you, perhaps others, who are highly competent in the technology aspects. Um, The technology is evolving rapidly, and you need to be competent with it. Um, But it's not as much a distinguishing factor among organizations as it used to be. Um, The culture in software has been a long time that we share breakthrough ideas, and they have been well shared. That doesn't mean you can ignore them. You've got to be good at them. But it's you've discovered not enough.
3: Um, I have one piece that I always tell people, and that is that um, in the whole software world, in all of my fifty-plus years of this, actually, I wrote my first code in sixty years ago in a in a summer camp for junior high school students. But anyway, um, I have never seen anything that's ten years old not be either uh, table stakes or or obsolete. So you do not want to be looking back much further than 10 years to find out what's current. And if you're not looking forward, what's new, then you're gonna be left behind really fast. It's a very fast moving environment. So you can't get stuck any place. You can't get stuck 20 years ago with a process that people thought was great. You can't get stuck um, with what was good 10 years ago because right now either it's made the grade and everybody thinks it's good, or it's obsolete, and you've got to have a new way of thinking about it. So, you should always be looking what's next coming, what's coming next, where's what's going to hit the whole world that I can't quite get my hands around right now, and be in be be brave enough, you know, and gutsy enough to go head off and see what that might be all about rather than worrying about copying the way other people seem to be doing stuff. And looking for places where people are looking for the next big thing. And then don't stay there. Just keep moving forward to what's coming over the horizon. Um, and, you know, remembering history. I mean, I worked on stuff that could have been considered artificial intelligence when I was an engineer in the, 60s, in the 70s. But the kinds of artificial intelligence we did then didn't become practical until, um, you know, we did neural networks. But you couldn't do neural networks on a computer until like about, I don't know, 2009 or 2010. And then all of a sudden in 2012, there was this massive artificial intelligence breakthrough with neural networks. And I'm thinking, huh, I heard about those when I was a kid. But they didn't become practical until 2012. And now, okay, so that's 10 years old. Artificial intelligence using um, using a uh, pattern matching is interesting. We are beginning to see its problems, you know, its biases, which are interesting. So what's next? Uh, where, where's the world going? I think if you keep looking at where's the world going, not where has it been, not how can I make money, but how can I do something interesting, make my, uh, you know, and make life good for somebody, then you're going to be a lot better off. You have to be really have, have an exploratory nature in order to enjoy software over time.
4: Above all, stay humble. Um, We've talked about how things that are radical and coming out as amazing today, how we were doing that 50 years ago. But going back even further, people think that the rate of change today is exceptional, that it's things are, the world is changing. Very dramatically, it's not. If you go back 120 years ago, when my great grandparents were uh, growing up, 1890s, 20 or
3: 1910,
4: that 20 years, that 20-year period, and compare that to the last 20 years, they had much more profound changes. The introduction, clean
3: water, electricity, airplanes. Um, automobiles, automobiles, all of that stuff happened in those two decades.
4: Absolutely dramatic changes in the life, daily life of every individual. And the uh, explosion of social media in the last 20 years is inconsequential in comparison to sewer systems, clean water, roads, airplanes, everything else that Um, came into being in that 20-year period. So things have really slowed down dramatically compared to what they did in our great-grandparents' days, or maybe in some of your cases, your (laughs) great-great-grandparents. So stay humble. Oh, and be an explorer. People are no smarter today than they were then, and they were pretty damn smart back then.
1: Awesome. Thanks so much. Uh, Where can our listeners go to follow you and keep up with what you're working on?
3: Okay, so I'm actually retired, so I'm not working on a whole lot. I have a Twitter account, but um, it's at M Poppendick. But I don't haven't done any tweets for a while. I have a uh, blog, leanessays.com, which I think is the best place. So leanessays.com. I do tweet when I post there. I think the last post was, you know, maybe six or eight months ago. Um, But I guess I do still do talks at um, conferences. And so you can hear some of my latest talks just by asking what videos you can find and see some of my latest talks. But um, because we're working to be retired, we're not actually trying to create too much new stuff, except people keep asking us to.
4: (laughs) And we can do that remotely, safely. But travel these days is unsafe because we're obviously in a rather at-risk age group for the whole COVID stuff. Well, Mary, Tom, thank you
0: so much for joining us. This has been an absolute blast. Really appreciate it.
3: Great. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed it.
4: Interesting to see what you make of it.
2: Mary started her career as a process control programmer, moved on to manage the IT department of a manufacturing plant, and then ended up in product development, where she was both a product champion and department manager. Tom is an enterprise analyst and architect and an agile process mentor. He focuses on identifying real business value and enabling product teams to realize that value. If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes.
1: Find show notes, blog posts, and more at sixfiguredev.com. And catch us live each week on Twitch. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at Six Figure Dev. This has been another
0: episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach their potential. I'm John Callaway.
2: I'm Clayton
1: Hunt. And I'm John Ash.